This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Disorderly Conduct, On the Media, and Jim Hightower. And I'd like it noted for the record that I resisted titling this episode, Episode 4, A New Pope, even though I totally considered it, only to find out that like a thousand people had beat me to it. Back in 1980, the Reagan campaign and the Republican Party made a deal with the guys who led the Christian right movement in America. Republican officials sat down with the likes of Jerry Falwell, Ralph Reed, Pat Robertson, and made a deal. The deal was about mutual support. The Republican Party would support the Christian right, its teachings and its messages. And if they got control of the government, they'd transfer hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer funds to Christian efforts, ranging from Christian schools to outreach centers operating under the guise of sex education programs, soup kitchens, and shelters. In exchange, the Christian right would support the economic and political goals of the Republican Party. And ever since that deal was done, the Republican Party has been positioning themselves as the Christian Party and the Party of God. Sort of like the Taliban. And then things got really odd. Ronald Reagan, the messiah of the Republican Party, almost never went to church and launched a war called Reaganomics on poor and working people while vastly enriching the already rich. And George W. Bush, whose presidency ushered in a second wave of Republican religiosity in America, and who once said that he had made the decision to commit my heart to Jesus Christ, went on to kill hundreds of thousands in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is the same George W. Bush who also told Palestinian leaders in 2003 that, quote, I'm driven with a mission from God. God would tell me, George, go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan, and I did. And God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq, and I did. End of quote. Yes, that's an actual quote from George W. Bush. This is not Christian behavior by pretty much any metric. In Matthew 25, Jesus was very specific about what it means to be a Christian. He says, for, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. By that criteria, the Republican Party is not a party that Jesus would recognize. For example... Earlier this month, Republicans voted to cut billions in spending from the SNAP food programs, the food stamp programs over 10 years, and nearly 3 million Americans would have lost food assistance next year as a result. Meanwhile, Republicans have repeatedly filibustered or blocked legislation to help homeless veterans, have tried to cut programs like Section 8 housing, which provide affordable housing to low-income residents, and have cut funding to homeless shelters nationwide. Just last year, according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Congressman Paul Ryan's Republican austerity budget would have taken away housing assistance from nearly a million American households. Center on Budget and Policy Priorities says that Republican-driven sequesters, well, the Republican-driven sequester, has pushed as many as 140,000 American households into homelessness. And while Republicans refuse to address the epidemic of homelessness in America, they're also refusing to address the issue of health care in this country. You know, Obamacare was passed so that more Americans could have access to health care. You know, hey, I'm sick, I need help. Okay, sure, no problem. Basic human cost. 
What have the Republicans done? 39 times now. They voted to repeal it, and never once have they offered an alternative. They're also working to slash funding to social safety net programs like Medicare and Medicaid, which keep millions of low-income and elderly Americans alive. The Republican Party says it's pro-life, but waging endless wars, refusing to back background checks to keep violent people from buying guns, and taking away health care from millions of Americans shows that they lie. And then there's the absurd claim Republicans make about being against abortion. In reality, Republican-backed policies are increasing the number of abortions in America. Republicans love to push abstinence-only sex education, but the only measurable thing that an abstinence-only education does is increase the number of unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases. The Republican Party also claims it's pro-family, but again, throwing Americans onto the street, slashing unemployment benefits, devastating programs like SNAP and Medicaid, all prove otherwise. In Matthew 6.24, the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. It's pretty clear that Republicans are doing very little to serve God and a whole lot to serve money. So, my suggestion. If Republicans want to go down the Christian road, instead of listening to hustlers like Ralph Reed and Pat Robertson, they could start by listening to Pope Francis. Pope Francis, the leader of the Catholic Church, the largest sect of Christianity in the world, has repeatedly denounced the very ideas that today's Republican Party promotes. In May, this Pope of the Poor lashed out against predatory capitalism, saying that, quote, quoting the Pope, unbridled capitalism has taught the logic of profit at any cost, of giving in order to receive, of exploitation without looking at the person. Back in July, he said that the global community must, quote, fight against wild capitalism and confront social injustice, end quote. Pope Francis is even concerned about the environment, something Republicans brag about trashing and exploiting. During his trip to Brazil this past week, Pope Francis called for, quote, respect and protection of the entire creation which God has entrusted to man, not so that it can be indiscriminately exploited, but rather made into a garden. The Pope preaches tolerance, something the very intolerant Republican Party could learn about just this morning. The Pope told reporters that, quote, if someone is gay and he searches for the Lord and has goodwill, who am I to judge? So if Republicans really want to keep calling themselves Christians, if they want to continue waving that flag and say, oh, yeah, we're the party of the Christians, at the very least, they should start listening to the Pope. Not that he speaks for all Christians, but, I mean, it's like over a billion Christians. They should start listening to this guy and change their policies to reflect the basic tenets of Christianity. And, you know, that guy who started it, Jesus? Okay, end of sermon. But, you know, I just, something just doesn't add up here. And the Pope is making it so clear that, you know, how, how somebody who really, really follows Christianity would behave and would speak relative to how the Republican Party does. It's so clear.
Last week, Pope uh, Francis continued an amazing streak of tolerant and understanding and compassionate quotes. He's talked about uh, homosexuality, understanding for downtrodden communities, and this last week he talked about capitalism. He talked about different ways that we can set up the economy and the consequences they have for poor people around the globe. And a lot of people took it as, rightfully so, a, very, a pretty strong attack on uh, out-of-control capitalism. So of course there's going to be some strike back from the right. They love capitalism. Uh, they say they love the Pope, but they don't like his most recent comments. So Stuart Varney is a host on Fox Business. He was talking about it on his show. Let's watch. I disagree with His Holiness in two ways. First and foremost, capitalism, in my opinion, is a liberator. The free choice of millions of people is the essence of freedom. In my opinion, society benefits most when people are free to pursue their own self-interest. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. When individuals are free, we collectively are better off in every way, financially and spiritually. Pope Jean-Paul understood that. He had experienced firsthand the horrors of a real dictatorship. And we in America are beginning to understand the problems that come when government sticks its fist into the marketplace. Second, I personally do not want my spiritual life mixed up with my political life. I go to church to save my soul. It's got nothing to do with my vote. Pope Francis has linked the two. He's offered direct criticism of a specific political system. He's characterized negatively that system. I think he wants to influence my politics. I think he's right. I think he's right. He, he might. Yeah. He might. Well, first, so he does talk about politics and religion should not mix. And Fox News has been a really good example yeah. of how politi politics and religion shouldn't mix, yeah. right? Yeah, now to be fair, he is Fox Business, slightly different audience. I understand their founding ideology slightly different. Um, but of course, it is, it is ridiculous the idea that he is an individual can say whatever he wants about the mixing of religion and politics. But the idea that they don't benefit come election time by people being whipped up into a frenzy by their priests, pastors, and things but like what that. What about the monstrous hypocrisy here? What about he? He's saying I do not. You know, the, the the Pope is saying this. I disagree with him. I don't want my politics and my spiritual life to, to mix. But it was okay. He cited Pope John Paul II yes. condemning communism. Mm -hmm. I mean. That's the most hypocritical thing you could possibly say. So talking about, uh, basically you talked about the straw mans, and, and I like that you brought that up, because it seems like to this guy who's supposed to be an expert on economics, he's a host on Fox Business, there are only two ways you can set up your economy. Either you're a free market or you are red China, I guess, which right. now is There's moving towards the free market. Right. Yeah. yeah, but that's not how the economy actually of, works. Of course, of course. You need a By mix the between the private sector and the public sector. In this case, Pope Francis was specifically talking about trickle-down economics and how it isn't working. I mean, we have a very, very long case study <laughs> here yeah. in the United States proving that trickle-down economics doesn't work. He's just stating the obvious. And, and the, the commentary that this host gave on Fox Business was inaccurate, right? It's inaccurate of what the United States stands for. So he's 100% in favor of individualism, where he's saying this is liberating. Capitalism is liberating. You're supposed to be out there looking out for yourself and not your fellow American. Mm -hmm. But that goes against the religion that Pope Francis is preaching, right? That's the religion that's supposed to say, help your neighbor, help yes. the poor. Right. And that's why I love the fact that this, this pope is changing the tune of Catholicism. Right. I mean, capitalism liberated those people in Bangladesh. Mm. Right? Haven't they? And all those people who make our totally, iPhones, they're totally. all liberated yeah. by capitalism. Aren't they all, all liberated? And what about Pope Pius X who supported Hitler? 
you know, I mean, wh where was where stored Varney on that one? I mean, this is a, a you know, this is just well, such hypocrisy. It's it's uh, not and even, and well, the he, idea that what he says, you know, I go to church with my spiritual life. I don't want it to mix with my social life. It's like, yeah, yeah a practical application of spirituality. It actually ends up in my real life. I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> I want to go to church on Sunday and leave all that bullshit there because then I can feel like a good person while I'm shitting on the poor the rest of the week. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, even in his example of what he seems to consider a good example of capitalism, he's talking about before, you know, Clinton, before Obama, it's not as if after World War II, the government was just totally hands off on the economy. Much higher uh, top marginal tax rates, massive U.S. investment in Western Europe, in Japan, reconstructing their economies. Like, we have the international economy we have specifically because of government investment, government regulation. Only more recently, like with the repeal of Glass-Steagall and things like that, this is when he considers the fist of the government to be in the economy. Obviously, we think it's the opposite problem. But, but uh, really, really fast. So F Varney is criticizing the Pope, but the Pope is a religious figure. And at Fox, you could get in a little bit of trouble. Even Sarah Palin stepped off of her initial criticism of Pope Francis. So he does have to backtrack just a little bit. Let's watch. Oh, now look, I think Pope Francis is a wonderful man. <laughs> he lives simply without extravagance. His life is an example to us all. So this Episcopalian is not critical of the man. I simply wish to keep politics out of the pulpit. I love that. His life is an example to all of us, an example that I would never follow. <laughs> right. Because that looks like hell. By the way, shouldn't he have told us in the first piece that he was an Episcopalian? Maybe he did, because I didn't see it in its entirety. But I went, I thought the entire time that he was Catholic mm -hmm, and he's been going to church and he, he it's his opinion on his pope mm -hmm. so I, I you know I mean so by the way the hypocrisy thing may be not as bad as I thought because he's he's not a practicing Catholic yet he still is talking about you know keeping religion out while talking on television but I did you think that he was I if you had just asked me I would have guessed that he probably was Catholic yeah for after hearing but with, the, with first, the accent who knows because people the Catholics don't have accents no, 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 that specific <laughs> accent, I would assume that he could be Anglican or something like that. I think Roberto Lopez would have a problem with that. <laughs> Pope Francis says that ideological Christians have an illness and word is that he also leaves the Vatican at night dressed as a priest to hang out with homeless people. This is getting more and more interesting to me, the Pope Francis thing. And I'm of course particularly interested because even though I am not Catholic, I am from Argentina and people in Argentina are loving this guy. There's this Argentinian restaurant in Queens here in New York City that I like going to. They have a picture of the Pope up. Even though nobody's really religious, they just find it kind of clever that the Pope is Argentinian and, and is into soccer. But we now have comments from Pope Francis about ideological purity in religion. And he says that uh, ideological extremism is dangerous to the entire world. I understand, Lewis, that you and I keep saying 
doesn't really matter what he says because nothing's really changing within the Catholic Church. I've actually rethought that, and in spite of all of the negative things happening within the Catholic Church, it does have over a billion followers, and the fact that Pope Francis is even saying these things, I think absolutely has to trickle down to some extent within the Catholic Church. I, I hope so. I hope people are paying attention. I hope his followers are paying close attention to the things he says and, and actually uh, thinks about the things he says. I guess this is important. I guess it, it kind of is a big deal. Uh, I have never heard any other pope, at least for the ones I've uh, been alive to see, talk about ideological extremism in any form. Correct. And the other interesting story related to Pope Francis is that a knowledgeable source in Rome told the Huffington Post that Swiss guards confirmed that the Pope has ventured out at night dressed as a regular priest to meet with homeless men and women. This is something he always used to do when he was a Cardinal Lewis, sneak out, break bread with homeless people, um, show them that, they, that people do care about them. I, I have to tell you, I find this to be quite an interesting Pope. Yeah, he certainly is uh, a lot more interesting than the last one. We can say that with certainty. You've probably heard by now that the Pope is an anti-capitalist. Just kidding. But he actually did write a really, really strongly worded, um, and I'm probably saying this wrong, apostolic exhortation, <laughs> uh, I guess. Apollos I think apostolic. Apostolic. Thank you. But apostolic is really good. I don't know. <laughs> it kind of sounds like of, the apocalypse, right? Exactly. It's brilliant. <laughs> apostolic. <laughs> I love I'm, it. I'm Jewish. I don't know how this works. <laughs> Catholicism stuff. Do we do this in Judaism? I don't even know. Like, write a big thing. No. Um, but I read. Oh, in Judaism? Yeah, we definitely do the we thing write, where we write a big we thing. We write like the Talmud, right? I don't know. This is horrible blasphemy. I'm sorry. I, I'm reform and I had a bat mitzvah and I don't know much beyond some really basic prayers. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> so. I thought that this was really interesting and I read, I didn't read all of it, it's about like 80 pages long, but I read a lot of, a lot of it and I just, I understand that the Catholic Church is a really corrupt institution, I acknowledge that they have a large bank and a huge amount of money and they should get rid of that and give it to the poor, um, obviously they've been covering up basically child rape for decades if not centuries, um, so we're not dealing with like an innocent institution here. But I do think that it is important when people write things that are powerful and forceful and ethical um, that, you know, sometimes the rhetoric can be helpful. And this is a person who has a huge amount of influence in the world. And so reading it, I was really excited. And I also felt like it reflected so much of the different things that I believed. Um, and so, you know, grain of salt, the Pope is, is at the head of this corrupt institution. But I do think that this document was still really helpful. So you all have probably heard some of the highlight reels. I'd love to just read a little bit of it that I thought was really good. Um, so this is from the section called No to an Economy of Exclusion. 
And he said, he writes, just as the commandment thou shall not kill sets a clear limit in order to safeguard the value of human life, today we also have to say thou shalt not to an economy of exclusion and inequality. Such an economy kills. How can it be that it is not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news when the stock market loses two points? This is a case of exclusion. Can we continue to stand by when food is thrown away while people are starving? This is a case of inequality. Today, everything comes under the laws of competition and the survival of the fittest, where the powerful feed upon the powerless. So, I mean... That's pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, he goes on. There's a whole bunch of other things. There's an interesting part at the end where he basically says that... You know, he's a pastor of a church without frontiers, and he call, he says, I exhort all countries to a generous openness that basically, he's basically saying, open up your borders and allow people to migrate into your country. Um, and he, you know, he talks about how trickle-down economics is nonsense, too. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. If you haven't read it um, and just maybe have read summary articles about it, I really, really, really encourage people to actually read the, the text. I won't bore you with any more long quotes, but... I, I just feel like this is a net positive. Um, Definitely. I'm oh, absolutely. What you think? No, Jesse. yeah, it's totally good. I mean, so look, it, it can be overstated how cool this pope is, just because in every way he's so much cooler than the Nazi guy. Like, doesn't mean that. Like, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I part part of me is reluctant to join in on the like Francis cheerleading, but everything he does is fucking cool. And uh, the the uh, if I could just add on another awesome thing that he did that I, I think is probably awesomer than this and that time he put on clown noses and all of the like cool fun interesting things he's done and he even um, possibly going out into the night in Rome right. ministering <laughs> to the poor which is fucking awesome like a like Pope Princess Jasmine um, <laughs> but I I think that the the coolest thing he's done potentially we'll see if it actually does good meaningful work but if it does do good meaningful work it, it will be the best thing he's done, which is he agreed to appoint a special commission to protect minors, which um, could, I mean, you know, whenever anybody um, appoints a commission, <laughs> like you have right, right to be right. super suspicious because like usually that's a, a way to cover up not really doing anything and not actually accepting any accountability. But on the off chance that it does produce some sort of um, house clearing, uh, I think I think that will be really um, uh I, I will take more heart from that than from a million uh, really awesome declarations like this last one, um, but which, as I say, was really awesome. So good on him. Yeah, and I just think like there's just uh, I really like the the rhetoric in here, which is why I encourage people to read it. Um, I think that there's things that can be borrowed. Obviously, it has a very very religious um, angle to it because uh, you know it's the Pope. <laughs> but like there's. <laughs> There's tons of things in here that I think are just like ripe to be mined and, and kind of echoed, you know, like he talks about a new tyranny has been born, invisible and virtual, um, which unilaterally and relentlessly imposes its own laws and rules and then talks about debt and that the thirst for power has no limits. And he, you know, like addresses the 1% head on and he basically says to them, like, I encourage financial experts and political leaders to ponder the words of one of the sages of antiquity. Not to share one's wealth is, with the poor is to steal from them and take away their livelihood. It is not our own goods which we hold, 
but theirs. Yeah. Well, so look, it, it, if it's clear that if we're going to get any sort of real change uh, in who holds economic and political power, um, it's going to require that people who are religious are on board, and that requires preaching a gospel of um, equity and justice and stuff like that. And so to the extent that this um, – the, the text that he released sort of like – um, gives uh, tools and ideas and a sort of theological framework to religious people who want to go out and preach, you know, y- use their their piety as like a means to achieve economic justice, then like, great, fabulous. Let's hope this resonates with like a generation of Catholic ministers who go out and uh, tell their congregations all the same thing. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restraint. Restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. the list of what Facebook's 1.2 billion users are talking about. Who in a summer survey by Twiplomacy was deemed the most influential man on Twitter? Who, according to Global Language Monitor, was the most talked about man on the internet? Who gets coverage in Gawker and GQ? Still don't know? Well, who was just named Time Magazine's Person of the Year? Come on, who loves tango and sinners? No, the real question is what religion has the stone-cold coolest leader? Wait, wait, don't tell me is Peter Sagal is making it too easy. It was a thrill for the crowds. Pope Francis walking out on the street to press the flesh. The embrace that has gone viral. Pope Francis laying his hands on a disfigured man. Pope Francis blasted church hardliners for focusing on small-minded rules that are divisive, like abortion, gay marriage, and contraception. I am not exactly sure what this pope wants, uh, but I'm starting to fear it's my time slot. He has garnered larger crowds in eight months as pope than Benedict XVI had his entire seven years as pope. That's gobsmacking. Rocco Palmo writes the influential blog Whispers in the Logia. You know, someone who is very serious, very dour, as Archbishop Buenos Aires, has suddenly become this wildly charismatic figure. The Argentinians who have, who have spoken to him since his election said, basically, what's gotten into you? He said, at the moment of the election, something just came over me and it hasn't left. That's a direct quote that's been passed along from him. Did he say what it was? Catholics believe that the choice of the Pope is determined by the Holy Spirit. And having spoken to electors who were in the conclave, some of whom were in the last conclave in 2005, once they went in there, as several have said to me, and they've used these exact words, something took over the place. Wow. 
a supernatural experience happen. And those who were in the conclave in 2005 said that it was unlike anything that happened even last time. People are willing to believe almost anything about this pope. Daniel Burke co-edits CNN's Belief blog. The one about going out to the poor went viral, even though it wasn't true. People at the Vatican have told me just no way that he can do that. But they seem like something that he would do. So when we call Pope Francis the Internet Pope, it's not that he does his own coding, right? <laughs> no. This Pope knows a lot of languages, but I don't think HTML is one of them. <laughs> it's more like stories about the Pope tend to go viral than the Pope himself kind of conceiving some master plan in the Vatican to get everyone to uh, retweet him. So how much of this is real and how much of this is papal brand management? Well, it's clear from the Pope's writings that he knows what he's doing. He has a plan in mind. He famously named himself after... Francis of Assisi, the guy who wears the long brown robe, always seemed to have animals around him. And, and one of the most famous statements attributed to St. Francis is, preach all the time, use words when necessary. And I think that this pope has really kind of taken that as his motto. He knows the power of these viral images, but that doesn't mean that he's not sincere when he does this. I mean, when he for instance, embraced and kissed the man whose body was unfortunately covered with boils. He didn't like look at it in his Vatican calendar and say, hey, I'm going to do this today. He didn't know that guy was going to show up in Vatican City. On December 4th, the Pope tweeted, quote, 50 years ago, Vatican II spoke of communications. Let us listen to, dialogue with, and bring to Christ all those we encounter in life. In fact, comparisons with Vatican II come up a lot, and it's not unreasonable to suggest that this may be the era of Vatican 2.0. A half century ago, Vatican II was the product of another elderly man of humble birth and abundant good works, whose coronation induced a seismic shift. Pope John XXIII actually did sneak out of the Vatican to walk the streets, as Francis is rumored to have done. John was the first pope in nearly a century to make pastoral visits to Roman hospitals and reformatories, as where Francis later washed the feet of juvenile inmates. In 1870, the first Vatican Council was tasked with defining church dogma in the face of the growing influence of rationalism. It formally declared the pope infallible. So why convene a second council when all questions were answered by infallibility? But in 1962, the Second Vatican Council aimed to correct an endemic failing, to turn an ingrown church outward by encouraging mass in the vernacular, reasserting the power of bishops and the laity, fostering friendly relations with other Christian and even non-Christian faiths. Jews would no longer bear collective guilt for the crucifixion, and religious liberty was declared a human right. Interestingly, so was access to information. Both producers and consumers of media had a responsibility to be both truthful and moral, but the decree explicitly extolled the power of the press, movies, radio, and television, especially for spreading the gospel. This embrace of media technology and this call for social communication was new. Television was just getting off the ground in much of the world. It's often said that the piano that could truly convey Beethoven's music wasn't invented until after his death. 
Vatican too could write the music, this call for social communication, this emphasis on the world outside the church, but it didn't have the piano. Francis does. It's called global media. Rocco Palmo. Francis is the first pope to have been ordained a priest after Vatican II ever. And so basically, while the church has spent the last 50 years since Vatican II fighting over the outcomes of Vatican II, for Francis, he was ordained after Vatican II, he was formed in that church, it's all settled question. Last month, in his landmark papal manifesto, Evangelii Gaudium, what one commentator called his I Have a Dream speech, Francis wrote, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets, rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. Sounds like Vatican too. And so does this quote. If one is an extreme necessity, he has the right to procure for himself what he needs out of the riches of others. Oh, wait, that was Vatican II. What Francis wrote was, quote, Just as the commandment, thou shalt not kill, sets a clear limit in order to safeguard the value of human life, today we also have to say, thou shalt not to an economy of exclusion and inequality. Such an economy kills. Today, while visiting one of Italy's poorest areas, Pope Francis denounced what he called idolatry of money in big business. Somebody has either written this for him or gotten to him. This is just pure Marxism coming out of the mouth of the Pope. Rush Limbaugh wasn't the only one who groused. The Pope's remarks about the tyranny of unfettered capitalism and the Church's fixation on issues like gay marriage and abortion make conservative clerics and commentators cringe. And even some on the left flinch when he remarks on the role of women. He, he tries to be nice. Maureen Fiedler is a longtime activist within the Church and host of the public radio show Interfaith Voices. He uses all of the positive stereotypes about women when he tries to describe us. He talks about women's sensitivity and intuition and distinctive skills like their special concern for others. Well, these are qualities that we share with a lot of men, himself included. He seems to think women are somehow a different species of human and puts us in a different, almost metaphysical category from men. And from there, of course, he goes on and ratifies the old decision not to have women ordained to the priesthood. Nevertheless, Fiedler credits him with ushering in an era of welcome and inclusion. And as he tries to do that, as he talks to more and more people with different perspectives in the church, it's very possible that he himself is open to change and that some of what he's putting out bespeaks a kind of interior wrestling within himself over some of these questions. At least I hope so. I think that attitude change, that way of kind of saying, let's sideline the culture wars, that's huge. CNN's belief blogger, Daniel Burke. He wants to kind of break that mold and say, hey, you know what, we need to go back to fundamental truths. What this church is about really is serving the poor, spreading the gospel. Strengthening the bishops and the laity, emphasizing social justice, reaching out to populations formerly shunned. It all goes back to Vatican II. Add to that his action to reform the Vatican Bank. And finally, a week ago Thursday, to convene a special commission of priests, nuns, and lay people to expose and address the church's deepest shame 
and you have a man engaged in a millennial ad campaign for Christ. He knows that this the sexual abuse crisis, it's the worst scandal the church has faced in centuries. I mean, let's be honest, it was front page news for years, decades. And so he knows that. And so in some ways, in the corner of his mind, he's got to know that going out there and showing this different face of the church, the face that hugs people who are disfigured, the, the face that washes the feet of juvenile delinquents, the, the face that is embraced by huge crowds in Brazil during World Youth Day. He knows that if people are writing about that, they're not going to be writing about sex abuse. So, partly it's a distraction? Distraction implies that it's insincere, which I'm not sure that it is. I think that it's a way of, as our political friends would say, changing the narrative. But I, I, again, I don't think that he... I think he sees it as kind of a rebalancing, that, you know, the church has done these terrible things, and it has to own up for them, and it has to treat the victims well, but that's not all the church is known for. The Pope will keep us focused on his good works and his good cheer. John XXIII brought the world in with a vernacular mass. Half a century later, Francis presides over a tango mass, which you're hearing now. Like Pope John, Francis communicates charity, dignity, and tolerance. But he does it through viral photos, Facebook posts, tweets, and the tango, preaching all the time as his patron saint advised, using words only when necessary. You knew it had to come. Fox News attacking the Pope. Oh, this is rich. From the guys who brought you war on Christmas, now apparently we have the war on the Pope. It starts on foxnews.com. It's uh, by an author named Adam Shaw. Uh, I like the title of his piece. It says, Pope Francis is the Catholic Church's Obama. God help us. I thought perhaps God helped you by picking Pope Francis in the first place. Who are you to argue? Apparently Fox News slightly above the almighty and hence can argue with this pick for the Pope. Uh, he writes, Pope Francis is undergoing a popularity surge comparable to the way Barack Obama was greeted in the, uh, by the world in 2008. And just as President Obama has been a disappointment for America, Pope Francis will prove a disaster for the Catholic Church. You know, all these folks were, they were so excited about Jesus Christ, but it's going to prove to be a disaster for the church, trying to help the poor and the needy and such. Okay, uh, interesting. Let's keep uh, going forward. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Adam Shaw doesn't think that uh, the Pope trying to help the poor is the problem. All right, let's find out. First of all, he says, just like President Obama loved apologizing for America, Pope Francis likes to apologize for the Catholic Church, thinking that the church is at its best when it's passive and not offending anyone's sensibilities. Now, what was it that Jesus said about turning the other cheek? No, 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 no. Jesus would have, he would have never apologized. You know what Jesus would have done? A preemptive strike. 
Okay, so this idea of saying, hey, you know what, if you want to hit me, I'll turn the other cheek, it's probably from a totally different document. Probably Jesus was the vicious guy that Fox News wishes him to be. Uh, now, Pope Francis once said this, which Adam Shaw apparently finds unacceptable. He said, we need to get to know each other, listen to each other, and improve our knowledge of the world around us. <laughs> Fox kills me, man. How do you disagree with that statement? Like, he wrote that like, can you believe he wrote that? I was like, yeah, that sounded pretty good. We, we shouldn't get to know each other. We shouldn't listen to one another. Well, if you listen to Fox News, they probably do think that. He continues calling this, this softly, softly approach of not making a fuss has been tried before and failed. That's right, because Jesus was not softly, softly. He was hard. Man, he said, if the Romans come for us, let him come get me and crucify me. Softly, softly approach. Won't work for good Christians. Um, <laughs> and he says that uh, Pope has, quote, a terrifying naivete. Now, Jesus believed he could change the world and that if you tried to help the poor and the needy, that you would have a reward up in heaven, right? <laughs> he says, nor do his comments reflect reality. Now, wait, you're the guy, presumably you're a Catholic, that's what he says in his article. You believe that reality is that Jesus walked on water, he uh, was the product of a virgin birth, and that the Pope is infallible. But wait a minute, you're now disagreeing with the Pope, so I'm confused as to which reality you're referring to. He's getting close to the end here. He says, Francis thinks by talking vacuously about the poor, he will be respected. <laughs> oh, that's the best one. So it turns out, what really pissed off Adam Shaw of FoxNews.com is that the Pope trying to help the poor and talked about how capitalism had gone awry and was getting too greedy and that it wasn't helping people in the ways that it could. Aha. Uh -huh. When having to choose between the Pope and capitalism, Fox News is going to choose capitalism every single time. And unfettered capitalism at that, talking vacuously about helping the poor. I believe that's what Jesus Christ did on a grand scale. The nerve of these guys, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever picked up the Bible once in your life? And to turn around and to say, this goddamn Pope seems to agree with Jesus. What are we going to do with this guy? I don't know if you know this, but uh, your prophet was not Adam Smith. Okay. And uh, nor was it Alan Greenspan. It was a Jewish carpenter who thought it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That uh, lambs would be rewarded in heaven. You should pick up the book and read it every once in a while. Finally, Adam Shaw concludes by saying, Francis not only panders to enemies and professional grievous mongers, but also attacks his allies. That seems a tiny bit ironic, because the entire article is one big grievance. And what is he doing? He's attacking a guy you would think might be his ally. In fact, as a Catholic, might be his leader. In fact, as a Catholic, might be his infallible leader. Unless, of course, he disagrees with Bill O'Reilly.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Pope Francis has been named Times Person of the Year just the day after, just hours after I spoke on this program about how I thought that his statements were starting to actually be significant in and of themselves, even if they weren't directly connected to a change in policy or doctrine from the Catholic Church. He has been named Times Person of the Year for 2013. Coming in second was Edward Snowden. Pope Francis is the first Jesuit pope and Times Managing Editor Nancy Gibbs explained that he is a new voice of conscience. In his nine months in office, she said, he has placed himself at the very center of the central conversations of our time about wealth and poverty, fairness and justice, transparency, modernity, globalization, the role of women, the nature of marriage, the temptations of power. When he kisses the face of a disfigured man or washes the feet of a Muslim woman, the image resonates far beyond the boundaries of the Catholic Church. Now, Vatican spokesman Federico Lombardi said, The Holy Father is not looking to become famous or to receive honors, but if the choice of person of the year helps spread the message of the gospel, a message of God's love for everyone, he will certainly be happy about that. You know, Lewis, I, I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, the Pope does seem closer to an actual Christian, right? Not the absurd caricature of Christianity that's presented by the American right wing. He's irritating a lot of right wingers, which makes me think he may be doing something right. So that's positive. But there is a counter argument, which is number one, this is the 21st century. Religion may not be something that deserves a place of honor among the enlightened, so to speak. And the fact that this pope seems more progressive relative to other popes is still only relative, and it leaves uh, it still leaves the Catholic Church far behind the modern world. Yeah, that's true. And time and time again, well, excuse the pun, with Times cover, uh, popularity has something to do with it. You know, he he is an incredibly popular person, and everyone knows who he is. And that is definitely factored in, into this. But uh, I have to say, as far as popes go, I, I'm pleased with him so far, uh, I guess, you know. Yeah, it's like, and, and again, you're kind of hedging in this relativistic way. For being a pope, and given that the Catholic Church still has a whole list of problems, he's less bad than others have been. But then the question also has to be, Lewis, when we think about Time's Person of the Year, who influenced the news more this year? Was it Pope Francis or did Edward Snowden influence the news more? And I think that there could be a case there to be made for Edward Snowden, even though I've been clear on this program, Lewis, I am no cheerleader of Edward Snowden, given that 
like I've said many times, he did not expose crimes. He exposed things maybe people think should be crimes, but uh, uh, I've been become increasingly skeptical about Snowden's true motivations. It doesn't really matter, right? It's a question of who influenced news and conversation more, and, and Snowden did a lot of that. There is a feeling like the clenching of a fist. There is a hunger in the center of the chest. There is a passage through the darkness and the mist. And though the body sleeps, the heart will never rest. Here's a twist on Christmas that would make Jesus weep. First, a right-wing faction in the U.S. has been wringing its hands over a hokey cultural crisis cooked up by the faction itself, namely that liberals, atheists, humanists, and God forbid, Marxists are waging a war on Christmas. The infidels are not accused of lobbing bombs in this war, but words of mass destruction. Specifically, the right-wing purists wail that unholy lefties are perverting the season by saying Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Second, some ultra-conservative members of this same faction have launched their own war against Jesus. How twisted is this? They say no one should mess with the word Christmas, yet they're messing with the guy Christmas is supposed to be about. Okay, technically they're not going directly at Jesus, but at a key part of his message and in particular at a key messenger of Christianity, Pope Francis. They've decided that the Pope is a Marxist, pointing out that Francis speaks often about the, quote, structural causes of poverty, the idolatry of money, and the new tyranny of unfettered capitalism. Obviously, say the Pontiff's pious critics, that's commie talk. The clincher for them was when Francis wrote an official papal document in which he asked in outrage, how can it be that it is not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news when the stock market loses two points? See, cried the carpers, that's proof that Francis is the Red Pope. But wait, that was a very good question, he asked, one ripe with a moral wrath that Jesus himself frequently showed toward the callous rich in their love of money. Indeed, the Pope's words ring with deep ethics you find in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Was he a commie too? This is Jim Hightower saying, Could it be that the Carpers are actually the ones lacking in real Christmas spirit? So where are strong And who are the trusted? And where is the So as we know, Pope Francis has been infiltrated by the KGB. We know that uh, he is taking uh, secret uh, memos from the Castro brothers, uh, and and pretty soon, when the uh, you know when Stalin's tomb is resurrected back uh, in Moscow, 
uh, this pope will rip off his clerical collar and say, yes, comrades, the work of Soviet restoration is done. Well, you might think this if you've been reading Newsmax or listening to Rush Limbaugh or other fantasies about the new pope. Uh, and many, uh, and some people, though, all, all kidding aside, literally have accused the pope of being uh, complicit with the KGB. Rush Limbaugh said he was talking, quote, pure Marxism, all because the pope is talking about poverty, inequality, uh, treating people like human beings, you know, God forbid. He's reading, he's, seeing, he's saying, I mean, he's saying markets should not be in the, uh, society is not in the service of markets. Markets are in the service of society. That's actually, that, that, that actually in a, in a hardly a radical point. But Pope Francis was interviewed about this, and he was asked in an interview with an Italian uh, newspaper, I believe, uh, about the Marxism question. And Pope Francis said, I'm not a Marxist. That's a wrong ideology. Marxist ideology is wrong, but, quote, I've met many Marxists in my life who are good people, so I don't feel offended. I love that he just, like, totally brushed the shoulder off on that one. Sort of like, yeah, actually, I know a lot of Marxists who are really committed and care about incredibly important issues, so I'm not offended by some fantasist in the United States uh, ranting and raving about me being something I'm not. But then he went on to reiterate and double down on his critique of trickle-down economics, which is, of course, the cause of the global crisis we face today. And he puts this really well. He said, this is Pope Francis talking again about trickle-down. The promise was was that when the glass was half full, it would overflow, benefiting the poor. But what happens instead is that but what happens instead is that when the glass is full, it magically gets bigger. Nothing ever comes out for the poor, which is exactly right. This whole strategy, and that's one of the reasons why Republicans and the right need to turn back to just being directly adversarial. Uh, uh, even towards their base, because there was a time in this country which, you know, can, with a, with a very well organized right wing machine and a compliant media, you had people like Jack Kemp running around talking about, you know, tr uh, conservatives who care about poverty and trickle down economics is really the best way to lift everybody up, and all this nonsense. And you know. Even as that theory has been totally discredited, very few Democrats and leading national figures in that regard have been as clear as the Pope in calling out this nonsense. And it is a distinction because it's not a radical departure in Catholic doctrine to talk about poverty and talk about accountability. But the level of specificity of the failure of an economic strategy is pretty distinct, and clearly Pope Francis isn't going anywhere on it. Uh, read give you another story here um what do you what do you think about pope francis actually um what do you what, I, 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 I'm one of those, i'm one of those people yeah. who think regardless of you know take obama for example mm -hmm. or take you know i'm talking about pope francis but take obama for example i mean regardless of the fact that you know he was you know unsure where he stood on gay marriage and then he came out and supported it are you talking about Obama? Yes. Oh, okay, I'm talking about Obama. Yes. Okay, I'm using him as an example. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. People, got you. people were like, you know, don't take, you know, how are, you know, Obama's just saying this or whatever. But it doesn't matter that he's just saying this. If, 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 if it was, you know, regardless of his position before, 
what he's saying now matters because it in my opinion it changed the outlook of a lot of people on certain things. I think it no definitely so yeah. regardless of whether the pope is really still in the same old catholic church as they were before when it comes to the economic issues because obviously the catholic church is still against gay marriage well they've actually but, always been pretty good on economic issues yes yeah. yes but but yeah. i mean like I think the Pope coming out, you know, with atheists, with him, you know, even with gays, he's been, I mean, he's, again, like I said, he's not for gay marriage, but he's... No, but he been, said, let's yes. not be, let's, yes. let's, like, tone it down a little yes. bit. Let's stop being ridiculous. I think it's an important thing for him to say. I think it changes the outlook of a lot of, you'll get a lot of Catholics who may have not been so liberal before, you know, look at these issues, and may, again, even if they're still in the Catholic Church position of no gay marriage, gay marriage is wrong... They won't demonize gay people, you know? Right. And, and I think when you have a, a, a person of authority saying something like that on social issues, economic issues, whatever, I think it, it makes a lot of people stop, think, and reevaluate. The Pope has been compromised by the Communist Party. <laughs> Little right wing Mandela. <laughs> Sorry, uh, no, but I, I I think it's imp I feel the same about when a celebrity goes out for a cause, regardless of whether you think you know Lady Gaga cares about gay marriage or whether you think you know some actor who's out there for 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 you know environmental rights cares about the environment as much as they say they do, or if they put their money where their mouth is or whatever. Just having them out there talking about it really makes certain people who look up to these people. Think differently. Well, no, and I, I mean, with the Pope, obviously, I think what's so fascinating, though, the real distinction you see in, is that, you know, and, and Sam's talked about this, is that when the Catholic Church is just focusing on demonizing gay people and on the social issues, they've been propped up by the right. So now when he comes back out and flips it around and says, look, the main crisis today is the tyranny of a certain brand of capitalism, which is literally grinding the life out of people. And it's fundamentally amoral to have uh, the sweatshop fire in Bangladesh. It's fundamentally amoral to you know, take massive bonuses while people are starving. It's fundamentally amoral to not have health care, to not have education, to have a youth unemployment crisis. Then the same people who have been propping up an institution have that institution turned back on them. And that's, you know, that's why there's the meltdown. So I think, you know... I mean, let's take even yeah. just what the Pope just said about the Marxist thing. Right. The Marxist comment. Right. He comes out, says, I'm not a Marxist. Right. Makes those certain groups happy. Oh, good, our Pope's not a Marxist, because that would make me think twice about him. Right. So now they're 100% on his side. I'm not saying this is his strategy, but this is what will he's, probably... He's pretty strategic. He's strategic, but yeah. I'm not saying... I'm not coming out and saying this is yeah. a strategy. But still, so they're, they're, he still has them. But right. then he goes on to say... But I know people who are Marxists and they're good people. Right. So he's not, he's not, they, they, he doesn't, he, what he says doesn't lose value to that group of people. But at the same time, he's able to get them, you know, you know, I, I don't agree with Marxist ideology, but maybe there are some, you know, maybe they, they're, some, they're not such bad people. Let's not demo demonize them like certain, certain far right groups do. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's little things like that. I really do think, I mean, it, it works. I mean, maybe not people who listen to this program. But for the common public, who's not doesn't have the time or the interest, maybe to be as politically aware, politically involved, uh, knows what's going on in the news twenty four seven. You know, they're not news files. I think that really does affect their psyche and how they think of things. No, I think that's I think that's a really good. I think uh, I think that's exactly right. And I think yeah, I think he's affecting the psyche, the, the a broader psyche, and a lot of really important issues.
Welcome back, everyone. Feels like the first day back to school after a vacation, which means we have to remind everyone what we were talking about before the break. So I have a few messages to play today, uh, all on different topics that were being talked about before the holidays. And uh, so you remember Mandela? He died. I did an episode on it. This is a reaction that didn't get played before on that subject. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and I'm calling about the Nelson Mandela episode. And uh, Matthew Rothschild highlighted something that was kind of glossed over by some of the other commentators about Nelson Mandela, which was that he did take place at one point in a violent struggle. And yet he, I think his contrast with Gandhi and Martin Luther King was flawed in, in one way, in that I think, for instance, imagine that the Civil War had not been fought and we became a slave nation, or that the, that the Confederates won. If you're going to take down that wall and there's no cracks in it, sometimes you got to hit it with a battering ram to create those cracks. And I think that's what Mandela ran into, is that he ran up against a unified white culture that was willing to willing to be essentially unlimited violence in order to keep control. They were willing to be blatant and open. Whereas with, Mar with the nonviolent resistance with Martin Luther King and almost an identical, or at least in principle identical struggle, very similar struggle, he had at least a large portion of the population that could be awakened, that could be shaken from their denial. Many of them thought that this had already been taken care of in the Civil War and just didn't want to believe it was still happening. So the nonviolent method of resistance brought it to the forefront. But even Martin Luther King and Gandhi had a much more nuanced approach to the topic of violence than they're ever given credit for on the left. And this can be harmful. For instance, Gandhi said, you were a worm. If you let your family be molested and, and you didn't do anything about it, then you were no better than a worm. Martin Luther King was surrounded by volunteer civilian guards and it might have been ceding that responsibility to the state, who then withdrew it from him when he started talking about economic issues, that allowed him to be assassinated, at least according to a Tennessee court, by the state. So it's really important to recognize that even Gandhi, I mean, even Gandhi and Martin Luther King didn't think that, that nonviolence was something where you just let people you know, break into your house and you know, rape your family and, and kill and steal and rob you. They thought that there was a tactic that could be used for certain struggles. And that tactic had some power in certain contexts. And as, as Mandela proves, in other contexts, other tactics are required. Thanks, and I really appreciate the show, and sorry for going so long. This next message is in response to a voicemail left by Wade, who refers to himself as a conservative, not a libertarian. So the message we're about to hear, I think maybe the, the listener misheard that a little bit, brought in libertarianism in a place where it hadn't been mentioned before, but that's okay. Anyways, Wade had uh, been calling, talking about uh, his you know absolute strong opposition to anything uh, you know, resembling sexual harassment, uh, anything perpetuating rape culture, because his uh, wife had been going through uh, troubles like that at her place of business, which sparked a conversation by me uh, about you know empathy and how empathy uh, sort of connects to our political stances. So, anyways, this is uh, a caller's response to Wade. Hey, this is Anthony. Yeah, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. Love the show. The great service you provide to everybody putting all this together. But in response to your last episode, the rape episode, 
you mentioned a young man who you thought was going to be like a jackass libertarian, but was very passionate and ardent about his own thoughts about rape and women and what they want. I've found very commonly in at least young men these days, a lot of young men that I know, that they are misguided by these ideas of libertarianism. You give a guy a copy of Nietzsche or a few quotes from Emerson, and all of a sudden they can validate all of their heteromasculine ideas about how society should function. Some of them are very, very passionate about this, but others do mental gymnastics. And it's going to be difficult to convince those that try to avoid the problem and avoid the argument of anything else. But if we continue to show empirical evidence of why these kinds of ideas are wrong and why Nietzsche and Emerson are actually saying opposite things, then we might have a chance of solving this rape culture. Love the show. Thanks for taking my call. Now, this last message is in response to a conversation I started about the custom of tipping in America. And I was basically positing the idea that the, the standard of tipping in America, you know, in that customers give money directly to the service staff rather than that staff being paid by their employer uh, leads to sort of the, the continuation of the cycle of you know those who are least able to you know sort of support themselves being the most vulnerable to fluctuations in business or fluctuations in all sorts of things you know so rather than a, a business owner being responsible for you know keeping the business going and keeping everyone paid it's actually the the staff themselves who you know if business is slow they then take the brunt of that and you know the restaurant business is essentially the only business in the country uh, that works that way so i started that discussion and this is a response hi jay it's uh, joe calling from barcelona um i want to just weigh in on the whole tipping issue i grew up obviously in the states but have been living in europe for several years my wife is Dutch, and the, the tipping issue is, um, has always been a bit of a, let's say, a topic for discussion between us. Uh, I reverting to my American habit of over-tipping, and she, of course, um, being perfectly content to leave some pocket change or round it up to the next euro or what have you. I have to say, after several years of living in Europe, um, I realized one thing in that, you know, if you do, uh, if you do leave a good tip, um, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get good service. Places will have good service or bad service, depending on how the management um, runs that, that particular establishment. And I think that's the way it should be. In, in, you know, I think someone else was commenting that, um, I think it was you actually, that, uh, by you know running on tips uh, the the actual management of the restaurant or bar are taking themselves out of the equation and leaving you know putting everything onto the servers and uh, in the european model everyone gets paid it's a normal job it's like any other customer service job and if you get bad service you just don't go back there again and that's that's what we do if we're in a restaurant and we get bad service then um we just won't go back to that restaurant and and that's the way it should be uh, and it's up to the restaurant to make sure they have good people who do give good service and it shouldn't have to rely on the public uh, tipping the servers directly 
So anyway, just wanted to weigh in on that and um, love love uh, the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I'm excited that I have an interesting update on the subject of tipping. After I initially brought up that discussion, uh, in addition to this message we just heard, uh, a listener wrote in giving me uh, a few links to some articles on the subject. And uh, through that reading... I found this New York Times article on the subject. And, you know, it it won't surprise you to hear that there's not a whole lot of talk about tipping in American society, but there is this, at least this one article, because uh, I I guess, you know, a few years ago, you know, last last decade sometime, uh, this restaurant decided to abolish tipping. They thought it's... uh, it, it's destructive to the workplace. It, it's pitting the servers against each other. It's pitting the the front of the house versus the back of the house. Uh, all, all sorts of bad is coming from it. So he proposed to the staff, what if we got rid of tipping altogether? And so when this New York Times writer got it in his head to write an article about tipping and he went in search of a restaurant that doesn't allow tipping, he came across this, this one restaurant. So um, this article is mostly about that restaurant. It's interest. It, it's definitely a good read. You should check it out in its entirety if, if you want to learn more. Uh, the article is titled "Why Tip" by Paul Wachter, published October 9th, two thousand eight, in the New York Times. But what I wanted to read to you is within this article, the author sort of gives a little bit of a you know historical perspective on where tipping came from. Now, the fact that we're comparing American style tipping versus European style, uh, you know, everyone just kind of gets paid their their wage and then a little bit of pocket change on top is is the tip is interesting because it turns out tipping came from Europe to America. So this is what it says. Tipping began as an aristocratic practice, a sprinkle of change for social inferiors, and it quickly spread among the upper classes in Europe. Yet, even at its outset, tipping engendered feelings of anxiety and resentment. After the Civil War, wealthy Americans began traveling to Europe in significant numbers, and they brought the tip home with them to demonstrate their worldliness. But the United States, unlike Europe, had no aristocratic tradition, and as tipping spread, like, quote, Evil insects and weeds, unquote, the New York Times claimed in 1897, many thought it was antithetical to American democratic ideals. Quote, tipping and the aristocratic idea it exemplifies is what we left Europe to escape, unquote. William Scott wrote in his 1916 anti-tipping screed, The Itching Palm, One periodical of the same era deplored tipping for creating a class of workers who relied on, quote, fawning for favors. Meanwhile, Europe was rethinking its devotion to the custom. The 1943 Catering Wages Act in Britain established a minimum wage for service employees that helped decrease their reliance on tips. And in 1955, France passed a law requiring its restaurants to add a service charge to each bill, a practice that had become the norm for most of the continent. So there you go. I always love it when someone who's familiar with facts actually comes in and then supports the things that I just sort of throw at the wall to see if they make sense. All in all, I think it's an interesting subject to discuss, not because I think that 
you know, this one tiny issue will, you know, really make or break <laughs> American society or, or anything like that. But it really does appear to be sort of a microcosm of, you know, the broader concepts that are generally accepted as the norms in the various continents, the way things have shaken out. So if you have further thoughts on, on this or any other subject discussed today, uh, call in the number 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained